Grab your Bibles, if you will, and let's get back to um, our uh, brief and hurried study of the book of Romans. Um, I, just one announcement. Uh, it is October, and you know what happens at the end of the month, and you know what, um, how much money you're spending on costumes. Well, we have um, a little thing here, um, and uh, last year we made this enormous mistake in that we forgot to make the hot dogs. So this year we've got that corrected. Uh, there will be uh, a hot dog meal available to you in Mike's place. Uh, thing starts at 5, and uh, if, the, if the horses are in town, we'll have the horses here. We're not sure of that just yet, but... So it'll be a, a night for the kids, and, and it's out in the gym, and it's, uh, you know, the price of admission is one bag of candy per child and all that business. So I think you know the, I think you know the, the uh, routine. Tonight we take a look at a, <clears throat> a, um, one verse, um, which I hope has some, um, I, I think has some lessons in it for us. Um, it is verse 2. Let me read verses 1 and 2 of Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Of course, um, the they is a reference to Judaism, his, brothers, his brethren according to the flesh. Um, I, if you've been around on Wednesday nights, you know that there has been a, 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 um, a real opportunity for me in, in terms of the Jewish community in this city, and it's been um, quite eventful and, and um, instructive. But Paul makes a statement here that is, um, is rather simple. Uh, this is not rocket science. This is, I, I'm not going to give you great insights tonight to uh, uh, you know, a new Greek word. Uh, I, I would even say that, um, that you probably already know the lesson that's contained, or at least the, the truth contained in verse 2. It is simply, zeal is no substitute for conversion. I think you already know that. Uh, I don't think that's something that, uh, it's a great insight on my part. And, and perhaps what I really ought to do is just stop there and move on to verse 3. But I'm not. Because I do think there are some lessons in this text for us, and, and we'll get to those before we close. But the Bible speaks of this issue uh, with some degree of frequency. I mean, it's not on every page, but it is... Um, um, it is contained. There's, um, there's one that has always arrested uh, me. It's in Proverbs chapter 26. It says this. This is verse 23. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Um, the, 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 proverb, the, the author of Proverbs says there's, there's something that you need to be careful of when it comes to fervent lips. Because zeal is no measurement of, zeal is not a measurement for much of anything, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and it certainly is not a substitute for, for conversion. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 10 was written by Paul and at one time described Paul. He was one whose zeal kept him from a relationship with Jesus Christ. But in our day, oh my, 
um, as long as you're sincere about something, that's really all that matters. Uh, sincerity or slash zeal is pretty much all that's needed to win an audience um, today. Because if you're really sincere about what you believe, <coughs> that's, um, that's what matters. No, it isn't, says the Apostle Paul. He's describing a whole group of people who have zeal who were sincere in their, their theological commitments. But there is a, a real absence um, in their zeal, and that is it's not in line with knowledge. Gang, the necessary first step in, in a relationship with the living God, the necessary first step, is knowledge. Now, knowledge in our day has gotten a bad rap because um, there are those, um, and, and perhaps here, that have, been that have been taught that doctrine is divisive. Doctrine is, is uh, you know, you can't fellowship around doctrine. And, and you know, um, you, you just need to set that aside while we just fellowship in Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, that is very short-sighted, very immature, very naive. The first step to a right relationship with God is knowledge. You know, I, I read this morning in John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And I, and I stopped and thought, why does he say true vine? I mean, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Why does Jesus say I'm the true vine? Well, because there's some false vines. But I'm the true vine. So the, the, the first step is knowledge. Knowledge grounded in truth. And we're going to look at that later on. But, um, guys, zeal is not a bad thing. But ignorant zeal is. Misguided zeal. Um, zeal that is not attached to and grows out of. Knowledge. Um, now, you, you all know the warning that Paul includes in 1 Corinthians 8 when he says knowledge puffs up. And it can and does and often does, guys. There's no question about that when people get all excited about um, how much they know. But for the moment, hoping to avoid that, knowledge is absolutely critical. Now, I, I know that's not a huge insight for you guys, but in the 21st century, it doesn't seem like it matters as much. Because, I mean, if the guy is sincere, for heaven's sake, send him some money. Um, there's a wonderful principle that's contained in John 8, verse 32. You know this. Um, Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Guys, do you, do you hear what's packed into that little statement? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here, here's, here's, the, here's the thing I want you to see. It is the knowledge of truth that gives right experience, not the other way around. It is not an experience that gives you the right truth. It is you will know the truth, and it will set you free. It will give its own experience 
But ladies and gentlemen, to evaluate truth based on experience is a very dangerous mistake. Right experiences can only be evaluated by truth, and truth gives its own experience. Just to, just to draw conclusions because you've had an experience or watched one or witnessed one is a very dangerous, naive, simpleton's approach to trying to sort things out. You shall know the truth. And in response to knowing it, it gives you all kinds of wonderful experience. Experience is wonderful. Subjective, emotive experience. Jonathan Edwards wrote a whole book about it. About right experiences. But guys, those right experiences are the derivative of truth, not the other way around. You don't, you don't find your truth by evaluating experiences. Let me just give you an example. I mean, I, this, I think I've told you this before, but a young woman came to me one time and she said, Dr. Young, I'm, I'm very, very confused. And I said, okay, well, what's the deal? She said, well, um, I, my, my, I had a, there was a man in our church, and he was, a, he was an elder in our church or whatever he was. I mean, I'm, I'm making some of this up, just kind of the detail, but the point's the truth. Well, he's an elder in our church, and, and I looked up to him all the life, and, and um, um, he's just been a great, great, great uh, uh, influence in my life. And I said, well, that's a good thing. She said, well, uh, something terrible's happened. And, and um, she said, I don't believe any, anymore in one's eternal security. I don't believe that anymore. I said, well, why is that? Why? She said, well, this man that I just told, told you about, his wife just died of cancer. Or died of cancer 90 days ago. And as a result of that horrible experience of losing his wife prematurely, this man has left the faith. So you couldn't possibly believe in something called eternal security. Do you see what the woman did? She evaluated truth by the experience that she had. Instead of the other way around. You don't come to truth via experience. You come to experience via truth. Guys, Christianity is primarily a teaching religion. It, it always has been. It's only in, in, a, in an age that has been riddled with relativism that we've come to this place where we don't think information matters. And we all want to live in harmony with everybody. It doesn't matter what they believe. Well, ladies and gentlemen, harmony is a good thing. But it can never come at the... Well, they're sincere in what they believe. Well, And I'm, I applaud that. But it is never to be a, a substitute for conversion. Guys, when Jesus was leaving this planet... He left behind something that we all treasure. It's something that we say we want to try and accomplish. It is called the Great Commission. And you know how that goes, don't you? Jesus steps in front of him and says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go in all the nations and make disciples. And then what does he say? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. At the heart of the Great Commission, 
at the heart of the great... In in fact, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure you knew this, but the command in the Great Commission is not go. The imperative does not land on the going. In fact, it's a participle which suggests that it assumes we're going. The The imperative is found on the making of the disciples. While you're out there, make disciples, and this this is how you do it. You teach them. Christianity is a teaching religion, which, as I said earlier, is something I bet you already knew. Um, Just just to show you, um, I don't know whether you want to look at these things with me, but um, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 1, this is Mark 121, Uh, It says, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. He goes in the synagogue, and he's teaching. Um, It was the model of Jesus that he was often found teaching. Uh, The church uh, experiences Pentecost. You know what Pentecost is? Pentecost is that outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the first time when He comes to dwell in fullness. And, and um, we're told right as the church has begun, this is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Um, later on, when Paul is on the loose, uh, in, uh, he writes to the Corinthian church in chapter 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, and he says in verses 18 and 19, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others. You know, can your experience devalue speaking in tongues, but would you for heaven's sakes instruct those people? It, it was the great need of God's people that they be instructed. Because, teaching, because Christianity has always been a teaching religion. It always has been, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's, it's a, and I'm going to tell you why in a, in a couple of minutes, but teaching is at the heart of what we are as the, as the followers of Jesus Christ. How do our disciples made? Well, they're made uh, by being instructed in all that he has uh, said and done. Now, guys, go back to Romans uh, 10 with me, and I want to show you something that some of you like this stuff, and, and, um, and I hope this will profit you some. But um, he says, I, I have a, they have a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. In the Greek New Testament, there are a couple of words for knowledge. Actually, there are maybe more than two, but there's the word gnosis. Um, um, the Gnostics, have you ever heard of the Gnostics? Well, uh, the, the, well the, the 21st century of... Um, um, Gnosticism is Mary Baker Eddy's uh, Christian Science, and they have a secret gnosis. They have a secret knowledge. Well, interestingly, that's not the word that you find in Romans 10. It's the word epinosis. Now, here, here, here's the point. When, when in the Greek language, when they wanted to take a word and intensify the word, they would, they would add the prefix epi. L- l- let me give you another example. Maybe you've heard of this word, thumia. It's a word that can be translated desire. But have you ever heard of this word, epi? 
Thumia. <laughs> Maybe not. But this is the word that's translated lust or passion. So if you took Thumia, a desire, and you wanted to intensify it and turn it into something that was really out of control, you just added the prefix epi to it. It's no longer desire, it's epi-desire or passion or lust. Now, all, all I'm trying to say is, that's the same thing that's happened with this word gnosis. It was not simply knowledge that Paul has in view. In fact, I want to show you this. If you can find um, Romans 2 real quick. Romans 2 verse 20, uh, you find this. Um, 2.20. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, guys, you'll have to check on the context later. But there's the word gnosis. That is, he's talking about Judaism and they have this, they, they are in possession of knowledge and he uses this word. But when he comes over here to say, they have a zeal. But it's not in accordance with knowledge. He doesn't use this word. He uses this one. There is knowledge. And then there's epignosis. There's gnosis. And then there's epignosis. And it's this, ladies and gentlemen, that Paul says that the unconverted are without. And and, in a minute I want to show you what, what, what I think separates this from this. But we'll get to that in just a second. But the word that is found in Romans 10 too is this one. They, they have a zeal, but it is, not, it is not a knowledge that's ever gotten under their skin. Um, like, you know, there's a desire, but then there's something that finally overtakes you, and it's epi-desire. Well, this is a knowledge, and they don't have that. And yet over in Romans 2, he does talk about them having this. They don't have this. Um, now, so having said all that, guys, I want to close with making three or drawing out of that three lessons that I hope will be will be helpful for you as the people of God. First of all, I, I made the statement that Christianity is a... Um, it's a teaching religion. It always has been. Um, why? Why do you think Christianity is a teaching religion? What I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, is that um, what you get here is an insight into biblical psychology. Why is Christianity a teaching religion? Because it's true to the, to the way that you're made. You know this, but guys, what things, how do we make choices? How do we make decisions? How do we come to any firm direction? Well, it's all based on things we believe. Um, so, if, if, it's, if my choices and my decisions and my behavior are based and rooted in things that I believe then I've got to be taught to believe right so that ultimately my choices and my decisions and my behavior will reflect truth. 
what you're, what you're being told, ladies and gentlemen, is this is how God works with us. How does God change us? Does He tickle your toes? Does He rub your back? Does He give you some kind of sweet, esoteric experience? And, and guys, I, and I don't mean to dismiss those entirely. I hope you have one, one of those every 10 or 12 years. But how in the main does God deal with His people? Here's how He does it. He speaks to the brain through instruction, and as a result, the heart is then grabbed, and decisions flow out of a belief system. That's how you're made. And that's why Christianity is the teaching religion. Religion. It's because that's how God gets to us. You see, He instructs us in things that are beautiful. And so, now you say, well, okay, Jimmy, big deal. Gang, do you know what is afoot in evangelicalism in the 21st century? The whole dumbing it down? Gang, to dumb things down is to harm you. I'm not doing you a favor by saying, oh, they can't get that. Let's just skip it and go on to something they can understand. Let's just talk more and more about, oh, I don't know, marriage. They really like that. Gang, good decisions flow out of good belief systems. So what else does that mean? Bad decisions flow out of bad belief systems. So for me to not address a bad belief system means I don't care for you. If I really loved you, I would instruct you. And I would teach you and teach you and teach you and teach you. Why? Because I want you to be puffed up? No, 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 that's, that's a gnosis mistake. I want, you to, I want to instruct you so that ultimately that forms a belief system on which we begin to make decisions that are honorable to God. Dumbing it down. It's because I don't like you if I do that. That's just going to harm you. Oh, well, they're, you know, they can't understand. Well, okay, let's, let's, let's raise the level. What do you say, guys? Because Christianity is a teaching religion. And it's a teaching religion because that's the way that God changes you. The second thing, or the second lesson. I want you to see this, guys. So if you've still got your Bibles, go to Isaiah chapter 30 with me. What I guess I really am saying... Is that to, to, the reason I pause over verse 2 and talk about t- uh, being a teaching religion? Because, guys, the spirit of the age is contrary to that. It's to dumb things down. You know, don't say anything pointed. Don't say anything that is, you know, um, complicated. Just, just, you know, just be relevant. You know, I have to tell the story. I mean, I've, I've said this before, but not, this is, of course, an extreme. And, and, you know, it's not really good to make examples out of extremes. But 
I know a church. If I'm lying, I'm dying. And they had a singles retreat to Florida one summer. And the, and the, the topic of the singles retreat to Florida was how to use their Hewlett-Packard computers. The Church of Jesus Christ took their singles on a retreat and the focus of the retreat was to explain to them how to use their Hewlett-Packard computers. Guys, that's not done because I love you. If I'm going to teach you how to... I mean, somebody ought to teach you how to use a huge packing, a computer somehow, I guess. But not the church of Jesus Christ. Christianity is a teaching religion because that's how God changes His people. Look at this. Look at this Isaiah chapter 30. You know, Isaiah is issuing all this, these scathing denouncements. And, and this one is aimed at Jerusalem. And uh, he says in verse 9 of chapter 30, For they are rebellious people, lying children. Now, Isaiah, that's a little bit hard on them, don't you think there, boy? I mean, why is it that you call them such a rebellious people? I mean, I, that's just a little hard. You need to back off just a little bit. Well, how is it that you know that they're rebellious people? They're children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Guys, do you know what the sign of rebellion is? A refusal to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Let me put it like this. Has anybody ever called you unteachable? Oh, I hope not. But do you know what that means? It means you're in rebellion. I will say this. That kind of unteachable spirit gets worse the older you get. And I speak as an older man. The youth is, is not as guilty of being unteachable as those of us with a little age under our belt. But, oh my, how wicked it is for any of us to become unteachable because Christianity as I said a moment ago is a teaching religion um, the, 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 the sign of rebellion is a refusal to be instructed in, in, in the precepts of God third I, I said I was going to try to explain the difference in this and this and I think it is this ladies and gentlemen the difference in gnosis and epignosis is the willingness to be taught and apply. In response to what I just heard, this is what I... Gnosis becomes epinosis. When it goes from being satis, uh, intellectually satisfying to being the directive of my life. When, when we're... When we're Satisfied with intellectual stimulation. That's gnosis. When the instruction is something that helped me determine how to direct and plan and organize and plot my life, then it's become epignosis. Oh, Jews had knowledge. It just never got 
got under their skin. What about you? What you got? This or that? I got four minutes left, and I, I could spend more. T- but I want to read you something. And I know you don't like to be read to. And I, I, but in my systematics class, I always read this. Um, this is by Chuck Swindoll, and I think it's excellent. And those of you who have taken my systematics class will, will remember it, perhaps. But so that, so that I won't leave you in about somewhere in the middle, you think, oh, okay, now I get it. Let me, let me kind of preview it so that you can get it from the very opening gun. He is contrasting parrots and eagles. Now, as you know, in the Bible, eagles would be a good thing. Parrots are never mentioned that I know of in the Scriptures. So parrots would be a bad thing. And so the title of this little article is called Of Parrots and Eagles. So the eagles are the good guys. So when he's describing the parrots, you'll know that he's not... He's not complimenting when he gets to the eagles. Listen to this. We are running shy of eagles and we're running over with parrots. Content to sit safely on our evangelical perches and repeat in rapid-fire falsetto our religious words. We are fast becoming overpopulated with bright-colored birds having soft bellies, big beaks, and little heads. What would help to balance things out would be a lot more keen-eyed, wide-winged creatures willing to soar out and up, exploring the illimitable ranges of the kingdom of God, willing to return with a brief report on their findings before they leave the nest again for another fascinating adventure. Parrot people are much different than eagle thinkers. Parrots like to stay in the same cage. Pick over the same pan full of seeds and listen to the same words over and over again until they can say them with ease. They like company, too. Lots of attention. A scratch here, a snuggle there, and they'll stay for years right on the same perch. You and I can't remember the last time we saw one fly. Parrots like the predictable, the secure, the strokes they get from their mutual admiration society. Now listen. Not eagles. There's not a predictable pinion in their wings. They think. They love to think. They are driven with this inner surge to search, to discover, to learn. And that means they're courageous, tough-minded, willing to ask the hard questions as they bypass the routine in vigorous pursuit of the truth, the whole truth, the deep things of God fresh from the Himalayan heights, where the thin air makes the thoughts pure and clear, rather than the tired, worn distillations of man. And unlike the intellectually impoverished parrot, eagles take risks getting their food because they hate anything that comes from a small dish of picked-over seeds. It's boring, dull, repetitious, and dry. Although rare, Eagles are not completely extinct in the historic skies of the church. Thomas Aquinas was one, as were Augustine and Bunyan, Wycliffe and Huss. So were G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Robert Dick Wilson, J. Gresham Machen, W.R. Nicole, and A.W. Tozer. Many of the Reformers qualify, as do John Newton, George Whitfield, 
and a long line of nonconformists, original thinkers, whose lives were interwoven through the treasured tapestry of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And in our day, we could name some, but they are increasingly more rare as the entertain me philosophy of the public out shouts those who plead, make me think. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing more thrilling. Not just the process of thinking and intellectual accomplishment, but a thinking that's in, in accord with the Scriptures, which is designed to affect the way I behave. Christianity is a teaching religion, and that ought to thrill us to the depths of our being. So, Paul says, oh, they have zeal. They got this. But that ain't enough. It's this we're after. And the difference in those two is one is satisfied with intellectual attainment. The other takes this this truth and begins to order their lives accordingly. Let's quit. Our Father... I do pray that you will stimulate your people, that you will remind them of the great beauties of of living as an eagle, as one who wants to soar upward and outward until we discover all the beauties of our God, or at least more of the beauties of our God. And I pray, Lord, that you will you will make us completely dissatisfied with the same pan of picked over seeds might we discover the great beauties of, of truth, theology, a knowledge of the living God. Do that for us, O oh God, would you? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.